morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, May 4th, we are studying Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 37. In response to the threats of the Sanhedrin, the Christian church gathers to pray and continues to care for each other's physical needs. Help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today. We have with us regular guest, Pastor Peter Ill. Pastor Ill serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's wonderful to be back to be celebrating the work of our crucified and risen Savior together. Pastor Ill, as we get started this morning, let's talk a little context. What happens in the first part of chapter four and anything else in the book of Acts that'll help us into our text for today? So this reading really continues on with what was going on earlier in chapter four when Peter and John were uh, testifying in the name of Jesus and even performing miracles, healing the sick uh, in the name of Jesus. And for their trouble, the rulers of the people actually had them arrested and beaten. Uh, and imprisoned. But then uh, when the rulers of the people saw that was a bad look and the people uh, weren't reacting well to that, they had them released. And so Peter and John then returned back to the disciples and and tell the other disciples uh, what has happened. And, uh, and the reaction that they have is immediately, instead of having a uh, any kind of celebratory party, uh, they simply respond with prayer, doing one of those things that the church does so well, simply gathering and praying, recognizing that this isn't because they had somehow um, overcome, but rather that God had provided for them. And so they were gathered in prayer. And we see this, this running act in the book of Acts of the church simply being the church. Jesus ascends into heaven, and what do the disciples do? They gather in an upper room. On the day of Pentecost, they gather and they're praying, and then the Holy Spirit comes and they end up going outside and preaching. And they gather in the temple, and they do this work uh, continually of simply being the church, praying, receiving the gifts, hearing the apostles' teaching, and continuing to live as the church, doing what the church does, praying, preaching, hearing, and receiving the gifts of God. And this is an example of that exact pattern being continued here in the middle of Acts chapter 4. When you say the church should be the church or the church is the church, the church does what the church does, what are what are those things that the church is and does that are inherent to the nature of being the church? Well, in Acts chapter 2, it talks about how the church gathers to hear the apostles' teaching, to pray for the breaking of the bread and the fellowship. And I think that's a really good uh, kind of snapshot of what the church does. Uh 
the church isn't here to be a political movement or to be a uh, social movement or, or anything like that. The church is to gather to be the people of God. Since we have the work of the crucified and risen Jesus, we gather in his name, by his action, around his word, to do those things that he has given us to do. And it's not up to Peter and John to try to rub the nose of the rulers of the people uh, that they're no longer imprisoned, or that it seems that public favor has gone with the church because people are believing in the name of Jesus. Instead, they simply say, oh, we're out of prison, so what should we do next? Oh, I know, we should pray. And that's exactly what they do. Uh, to gather to be the people of God without pretense, without trying to, uh, without trying to have any kind of a, of a political movement, but simply to be God's people doing and receiving and practicing what he has given us to do. And one of those things is certainly to pray to God who created the heavens and the seas and who continues to watch over them in his gracious providence and love for us. One of the beautiful beautiful things about the way we see that in this part of the book of Acts is that for Peter and John, the other apostles, the rest of the Christians, this is just the the natural thing for them to do, or maybe not natural, but the this is what the Spirit leads them to do because that's what the the Spirit does within Christians. They're as you said, they're not doing it for a pretense. They're not doing it out of a way of show. But this is simply what happens among Christians. They respond to whatever situation. And as you pointed out, the situation they are responding to here is the persecution, the beating, the imprisonment. They respond to that in prayer by turning to the Lord and by continuing to do those things that God has given them to do. And it's not, it's not for trying to show anybody anything. It does give witness, but it's simply because this is who they are who God has made them to be. And that's the way that he works. And that's, uh, that's just a beautiful thing to see here in this section of Acts. And, and I think it's a helpful thing for us as we prepare to study the text to, to bear in mind and remember when we are the church, we aren't the church trying to, to prove it to anyone else, but we simply gather um, in the name of God, receiving the things that he does for us. And what do we do? We pray. Just like Peter and John and the early church here in Acts chapter 4. And so we gather to pray, not because we need to prove it to anyone else, but because we are the people of God uh, as the Spirit intercedes for us in our weakness and as we intercede for ourselves and for each other in our own weaknesses and in those times when the Lord does good for us. We simply live in that message not needing to worry about anything that has been uh, that has been done, but saying God is the God of the the earth and the sea, and He's the one who's going to take care of it, and we recognize that and move right along. Well, with that introduction, let's go ahead and take a look at the first part of our text today. We're picking up at Acts four, verse twenty-three. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That takes us through verse 31 of our text. We'll pause there. Pastor Ill, as the scene is set here in our text, they were released, Peter and John, who had been imprisoned. They go, as the ESV reads, to their friends and tell them what happened. What, what, are, what are we picturing? Who's the group we're talking about here? This bigger group. Um, and interestingly enough, the Greek doesn't even use the word friends. Uh, it just says those who were gathered. And as they go to the gathered ones, these are the ones who believe uh, the greater picture of disciples in the book of Acts. It's growing day by day. And so they go to, to their own and they tell them what's been going on. Uh, so this is going to be the gathering of, of the greater crowd of the disciples uh, bordering on the whole church uh, who is living together and it seems is, is living together uh, maybe not sharing uh, perhaps a, a place to stay, but certainly having a place where they gather daily. We know from Acts chapter 2 that they've been gathering regularly in and around the temple. And so they continue to do these very things as they gather. And as soon as Peter and John are seen, everybody wants to know what happened. Why aren't they still in prison? And what's the next step? in terms of, of this apostolic ministry that God has called them to. And so uh, what they do is they tell what's gone on, and then the whole body gathers and starts to pray. Uh, and it's really interesting the, the way that they start to address God in this prayer uh, as they start out by saying, uh, Sovereign Lord, uh, or the Greek word there is uh, uh, deopote, uh, which means master. Uh, so master who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Uh, they address their prayer to God who will do all things and who has all control over the created world. The God who speaks through the words of scripture, especially through the mouth of David um, in the Psalms. And so they go from how God reveals himself in creation to how God reveals himself in his written word. Um, and the prayer then will move from Psalm 2 into the history of Jesus. So you see this, this kind of uh, trifecta of how God reveals himself, first in creation, then in his word, and then in his son, the anointed Jesus Christ. And so through all of this, we see how God reveals himself to his people and how he cares for them. He is the creator, he is the speaker in scripture, and he is the incarnate one in the anointed Jesus Christ. I really appreciate the way that you've broken down those three ways God reveals himself and that as that 
is included here in this prayer. Before we get too much into the content of the prayer, particularly that reference that's there to Psalm 2, just let's talk a little bit about the fact that prayer is their response. Of all the things they could have done, they pray. Why is this a significant thing that this is the way the church responds to the news of the persecution? I think, in short, to say that when the church gathers, the church prays is really significant because when something significant happens to me, I tend to want to look to myself or to look to the thing that happened or to look at the person who did who did this good or bad thing to or against me and and talk about that. But the focus isn't really and truly on the church. The focus here isn't really or truly on the apostles. The focus here isn't even exclusively on the witness, but the focus that that prayer in general, and this prayer in specific has, is in the work of God for his people. So what's at the very center of the scriptural story and God's acts recorded for us in scripture? God's own work. This isn't about the church. This isn't about the apostles. This isn't about the rulers of the temple or the Sanhedrin. No, this is all about God working to deliver his people and working to show the salvation of his people and how he has brought that about. And so this prayer is all about talking to God about what God has done, not about what the apostles have done or what the church has done. Because if we start to simply focus on what the church has done, or if we start to focus on what the church is, uh, without focusing on who God is and what God does for his church and in his church, then we're getting the cart before the horse. But that's not what the apostles and the disciples and the church does here. Here, they receive God's gifts and they respond in prayer and in praise, uh, and then go on to ask God that he would continue to embolden their witness. This is all about the work of God for them, not about them uh, puffing themselves up or saying, this is what the church did in the midst of this persecution or in the middle of this attack. That doesn't seem to matter to them. What matters to them is the relationship that their Lord has with them, that he has come to care for them and to act for them. And they get to be there as recipients of God's almighty and gracious actions. I mean, this is something that the church certainly can learn from still today, that when we face whatever situation it may be, in this case it is persecution, but whatever situation we may face, the first step isn't, say, to have a voters meeting or or gather the church council together unless they're going to pray at those things. I mean, that's that's what the church does. That's our sometimes I, I've referred to it in this way that prayer should be a, a reflex for Christians. Whatever the situation is, we find a way to pray about that situation. Right. And I think I, I think talking about it that way as as having that prayerful reflex is a really good thing. Because for us in the the not as early church today, we tend to have a reaction of, of trying to get things done. Um, when a church suffers, say, a damage to their building, or when sickness is prevalent in the church, or there's some kind of controversy or terrible thing, or uh, thinking, 
you know, even a couple of years ago to the beginning of, of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, how did we react? Uh, the first and foremost reflex of most churches, unfortunately, isn't necessarily to drop to our knees and to pray, but rather to, to try to fix, to try to control. And when we do that, it shows our own sinfulness and the ways that we are curved in on ourselves because we just assume that we should be able to, <coughs> to fix this problem or to control this thing that's going on. But the truth is, we're not the ones in control. We aren't the ones who created the earth and the sea and who fills them with everything that they have. We aren't the one who speaks in scripture. We aren't the one who has brought our Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. Uh, we receive those things from God. And so we drop before God on our knees in prayer as beggars who ask God to do for us what he will do and to act for us out of his characteristics of mercy and grace and love. And we ask him to do those things because we sure can't do them ourselves. And one of the things that I love about this reading from Acts 4 is you don't see an insertion of, of the sinfulness of the apostles in the early church. They simply live in, in this resurrection joy. And they reflexively pray. For us today, our inclinations aren't so quick to pray. But boy, I kind of wish they were. I, I wish, uh, and maybe my own prayer will, will change, to say, God, lead me more to recognize your actions and to lead me to pray more when you do things. Because it's not about what I see and what I do, but it's about what you do. And that I would continually reflect that back to you in prayer and in praise. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, again, their reflex for prayer. And then the way that the prayer is shaped by what they know God has done and what he's said in Holy Scripture is just a marvelous thing. And certainly is an opportunity for us as Christians when we recognize our own sloth to pray that we would make that a prayer in and of itself. Lord, help me to pray. This is what the disciples asked their own Lord Jesus was teach us how to pray. And we need that same thing. And so certainly as we look at this text from Acts 4, this is an opportunity for us to pray that same thing. Lord, use this text to help us learn to pray, to face whatever situation it is, particularly times of persecution in prayer and a prayer that is informed by what God has done, who he is. And so as, as you pointed out, Pastor L, there, there are three progressions to this prayer as the ways God identifies himself. And then there's the petition that comes at the end of the prayer. So let's dig into each of those parts. The first, as you said, is the apostles identify the Lord as the sovereign Lord. The, the Greek, as you said, behind is, the, is a despot, which sounds bad to us in English, but it doesn't carry those same connotations. It is an almighty sovereign Lord, the one who rules over everything. And in particularly, he's the creator. Uh, what's the significance of beginning the prayer, recognizing God as the sovereign one, the creator of all things? We start by recognizing that the Lord's power 
is over all people and over all of creation. And he's the one who started everything by starting everything. He's the one who, who made the earth and the sea, everything that we see, everything that fills everything that we see. He's the one who rules over all of that and who's in charge of all of that. And so they start with what they can see and touch, what they can know and feel and and say, you're the one who made everything. And in this most general of the ways that you have revealed yourself to us, everybody knows and everybody recognizes that you are the one who creates and you have called all things into being. But then from there, they get they start to get a little more specific because not only has God made everything, but he has something to say about what he has made and about how life works in this created order that he has provided. And so that's when they shift from, from what everybody can see and know in creation to how the Lord speaks through the scriptures, especially the scriptures according to David in the Psalms. Uh, it's a, a remarkable again to see how the apostles recognize that the scriptures are the word of God spoken by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David. This is the the doctrine of inspiration as we still confess it. The apostles confess it here in their prayer. We've heard Peter speak similarly in the past in sermons that he's preached in the book of Acts. As you've noted here, the prayer that they offer is based on the scripture that comes from Psalm 2. It's always, it's remarkable to me, too, how many times now the apostles, as they've been primarily preaching, but here they're praying, in their public speaking in these ways, they continue to make reference to the Psalms as one of the primary books that's going to have something to say to them about Jesus. This is the first time in the book of Acts that we've heard from Psalm 2. So help us into this quote that they use as a part of their prayer from Psalm 2. So... We've, we've said that this is Psalm 2, but this is especially Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Uh, and, and just to put that back freshly in our minds, it goes like this. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Psalm 2 is one of these psalms that talks about how God acts for his people over against the Gentiles or the nations, the people who weren't the people of God. And so uh, when it talks about uh, in that second part of Psalm 2 verse 1 or uh, verse 25 here in Acts 4, it says the people's plot in vain. That's not just people in general, but it's the people, the nations, the ones who are opposed to God's people. And it seems really uh, kind of Interesting, but also a little counterintuitive that the first uh, quote of Psalm 2 here in the book of Acts goes into, the Gentiles are picking on us. Hmm. But who's actually doing the picking and who's doing the persecuting in this specific instance in Acts chapter 4? It's actually not the Gentiles. It's not the nations. It's the rulers of God's people. Um, the, the ones who are leading the Jews in the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and the Pharisees, people who are good, pious, faithful Jews are the ones who are setting themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed, who are against Jesus. And uh, at first glance, you say, well, wait a minute, 
they're using a psalm that talks about how the Gentiles are picking on them, but the Gentiles aren't doing the picking. But then it goes on as they continue their prayer that the Jews have put themselves in with Pontius Pilate and with Herod, who are Gentiles, to oppose Jesus and to have Jesus, the servant of God, as it's described here, put to death by crucifixion. And so uh, even the leaders of the Jews are doing Gentile things. And the Jews are gathering themselves together, uh, that is, the Jews who don't believe in Jesus, are gathering themselves together with the Gentiles to oppose the Lord and to oppose his anointed, to oppose the church and to oppose the people of God who are confessing the fullness of God's presence with them. Uh, I said before that to go from the creation to uh, where God reveals himself, to how God reveals himself in the scripture, to how God reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, is a is a narrowing and focusing of this idea of how God shows himself. But now you see them using scripture to say, God is showing himself to us, and the leaders of the people, the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and the rulers of the people, they, they're rejecting God. God's showing himself, and they're saying, no thanks. Uh, we think we have a better grasp on how God is revealing himself than how God is revealing himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we'd rather do it our own way. Uh, but the apostles and the early church are having none of that. It, it strikes me as they use this quote from Psalm 2, and as you pointed out, it does talk about the Gentiles and the peoples. And they they take this text and they apply it more to what has happened to Jesus, or I should say they apply it first to what has happened to Jesus before they then think about themselves in that picture. And we talked a little bit about this previously, how the life of the church within the book of Acts, you often see it mirroring the life of Jesus. And I think that's maybe what's going on here in the apostles' minds as they're praying and in the whole church as they're praying, that they see that, okay, these things happened to Jesus and now they're happening to us and they're not surprised by that. And, and we're going to see later in the book of Acts, they're even going to rejoice when these things happen, when they get to suffer for the sake of Christ's name. And it seems that that's part of the move that they're making here in this quote from Psalm 2. And there's a number of other things I think we can talk about, Pastor L, but we need to take our break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking about Acts chapter 4 with Pastor Peter Ill. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, May 4th. We're studying Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 37 with Pastor Peter Ill. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, prior to the break, we were talking about 
the apostles' use of Psalm 2 here within their prayer. The other thing that strikes me about this, and I know they just quote the first two verses of Psalm 2, but surely they they know the whole psalm. And, and as you know, the psalm continues that, well, the rulers of the earth do these things, setting themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, and his anointed. But the Lord is laughing about all this, and he frustrates their plans such that by the end of the, the psalm, the answer is to put your trust in the Son, in the anointed one. And it, it strikes me that by making use of Psalm 2 here, you see the apostles' confidence grow. And, and again, not in themselves, but that they, they know that what's happening to them, again, is not strange because they've seen it happen to the Lord himself in his own crucifixion. But they also know where this is leading, that the Lord Jesus is victorious. And so they can pray with this confidence and joy because they know how the psalm ends and they've seen how the Lord's story worked itself out as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, the Lord's story ends not with the crucifixion of Jesus the anointed, but with his resurrection. Uh, And so the Gentiles can rage and the peoples can plot in vain and Herod and Pilate can do Herod and Pilate things. But Herod isn't going to keep Jesus in the tomb. Pilate and his guard aren't enough to foil God's plan that he has been working since before the creation to accomplish. And so that's exactly what God is going to do. God makes the Gentiles and the rulers and the kings of the earth who oppose the anointed, even Herod and Pilate, look silly because of what God has done for them in the person of his servant, Jesus Christ, who was indeed crucified, but who was raised again. And so the Sanhedrin and the rulers of the people, they can beat Peter and John. They can reject their miracles. They can do all of these things. So what? At the end of the day, God is glorified, and God is the one who does his important and his unstoppable, gracious work of bringing his name to all people and to revealing his name as the one who is holy. It's true, he created everything that is. He spoke in the scriptures. He even took on flesh to suffer and die for his people. And in the midst of all of that, He is the sovereign Lord, the master who rules over all things. And that is what is confessed in this prayer, as the apostles in the early church say, just that. I suppose that leads right into the way this prayer continues in some language that may catch us slightly off guard or raise our eyebrows a little bit because of some of the connotations that the word carries in English. In verse 28, The apostles pray that the Lord to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That word predestined sometimes raises eyebrows. What what are the apostles praying there? Right. And so uh, the, the Greek word here is could be foreordained or could be planned before or could be predestined. Um, Usually, as Lutheran Christians, when we start to talk about predestined, we start to think about how people are converted to faith. And when we talk about predestination, you know, in quotation marks, we think about 
about how somebody becomes a Christian. But that's not what Acts 4 is talking about at all. This is simply talking about God's plan. God has had a plan since before the creation to save the world in this way. In his hand, he was going to send his son so that he would die on a cross and be raised from the dead for the forgiveness of all people and to call all to believe in him And this has been the plan of God all along. The work of Jesus Christ to frustrate the Gentiles and the rulers and the people who are gathered together, this is no plan B. This isn't God's fallback option. This has been the work and the will of God since before the creation. And he has been working to accomplish this uh, since before he made the heavens and the earth, before he filled the earth and the sea. And now it is fully seen in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the crucified one, but also the risen one, the one who comes so that the work of Peter and John can be seen as a continuation and an extension of God's gracious work for the people that he has made, for the people that he loves. From there, the apostles get to their petition within the prayer in verse 29. And and I think there's two petitions, Pastor Ill. They say, now, Lord, first, look upon their threats. And then second, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And and that that petition continues. But that, that first one, it sounds like, Lord, keep your promise according to Psalm 2. Do do what you say you will do. Frustrate any plans that go against you. That's maybe the first part of their prayer. And then second, give us boldness to continue to speak in this way, which is a, a reminder that what we see happen in the apostles and going all the way back to, to Pentecost, this isn't some courageous character of Peter or John, but this is the Lord working through them, making them bold by the work of the Spirit. Exactly. And so they ask that God would uh, would do exactly this thing of just like you would look at the Gentiles and the rulers and the people who gather and you would frustrate their plan. All that stuff that you promised to do in Acts 2 or in Psalm 2, keep doing it. Uh, keep being faithful to those words that you spoke through David and bolden us too. Strengthen us that as we do those things that you have put before us, <coughs> that we would do it with boldness and confidence towards you and continue to have that strength that you provide. Because life in the church isn't about our personal strengths and our personal ability to overcome and our own ability to be good Christians. These are all God-given Holy Spirit-given gifts that God does for us, and they're just asking God to continue to do what he already said he was going to do. They're reminding God of his promises and asking God to continue to be faithful to those previous promises, just like he said he was going to do. And just like a child might approach their parent and say, but you promised that you would do this or that. So also is the life of the church and the life of the Christian in prayer. God, you promised to make us bold when the Gentiles and the rulers of the people would come together against us. So all that stuff you said you were going to do, keep it up. And that's the prayer of the early church here in Acts 4, just like it's the prayer of the church today. God, you promised. Remember your promises and keep your promises, not because we're afraid that you might forget, 
but because we might forget. And so we're reminding you, not because you need the reminder, but because we need it. And so they uh, remind themselves of the promises of God for boldness, which he hears and answers uh, coming up in verse 31. Hmm. Uh, This again, this the, now when you get to the actual petition of the prayer, it's just an excellent reminder for me in particular. I, I know when I when I have a difficult conversation that I'm having to to approach as a whether as a pastor or as a Christian in general, it's very easy to think in my mind, okay, what are they going to say? What am I going to say in response? And kind of have that back and forth in my mind. And I'm not suggesting that that's bad or that can't be useful, but sometimes I forget to pray when I do that. And and when I when I forget to pray. It, it's very likely that the conversation doesn't go very well. And, and prayer is not some sort of magic bullet that you, you know, do it and you get what you want. But it is remarkable to me. I suppose it shouldn't be. It's wonderful to witness, I should say, when the Lord does keep his promise, that when, when I ask him for what he's promised to give me, he actually gives it to me. It's, it's quite something. Right. Uh, because this prayer isn't about us. Uh, it's about right. the work of God for us. And and so we are continually reminded that it is God who loves us, God who made us, God who has redeemed and restored us, God who continues to act for our good, who hears these prayers like a, a gentle and gracious and loving Father, and who wants to hear our prayer and who wants to answer them. And to start with this pattern of, of going back to the scriptures and saying, God, this is what you told us a long time ago uh, through our father David or through the other scriptures. Keep it up. Of course, right. God is pleased to keep up and to continue those blessings that he has first and foremost given to us and to keep giving us those blessings today, to continue that gift of boldness and zeal, to strengthen our faith and to hold us as his own dear children. I talk then about how the Lord does answer the prayer in verse 31. Uh The simple answer is to say that in verse 31, it just says, he blessed them with boldness. They they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the words of God with boldness. Uh, That's the easy answer. The little more complicated answer is to say, uh, before that, when they had prayed, the place where they gathered together was shaken. And this is where my imagination wants to take off with me a little bit. Like, like, was there an earthquake? Was there a loud rushing wind? Um, what exactly did that being shaken look like? The short answer is we don't know. Uh, but there was a manifestation of God where they all recognized that uh, the place that they were was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they they what was done for them was just what they had asked. They asked to continue to speak the word of God with boldness, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God heard their prayer and answered it in the affirmative. What's important here isn't the shaking of the house or even the gift of boldness and confidence that was given them, but the fact that all of this comes for them from God. Uh, sometimes uh, Christians that I care for will say, well, pastor, it's just so important that we pray and that we have faith in the power of prayer. Absolutely. Uh, Because it is the Lord our God who hears our prayer and answers it. 
But we don't have faith exactly in the power of prayer. We have faith in the God who hears and answers prayer. And that's a that's a really subtle distinction, but a really important one too. My prayer isn't what counts for anything. It's not my petition to God that matters anything. It's the fact that God, who wants to hear my prayer, does hear it and answers it. That's what counts. It is faith in the God who acts. Faith in the God who acts in the person of Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. God who acts in the Holy Spirit, who has called me by the gospel and sanctified and keeps me in the one true faith. That is the faith and the confidence that we have. It's not just about my prayer, but about God who wants us to pray and God who answers our prayer and keeps us faithful with boldness by the work of his Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what gets seen here in Acts 4.31. Hmm. Uh, St. Luke moves the account along then into another statement that gives us a, a bit of a summary of the life of the church and gets into a, a specific situation that will springboard into the next text in Acts chapter 5. So we pick up again now in Acts 4.32 with the text. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That takes us through the end of our text through Acts 4.37. Pastor L, before we talk about the specifics of this text, maybe it's just good to start with a reminder of when we read the book of Acts, there are parts that are certainly prescriptive, that is, they prescribe things that the church should do in every time and every place. But then there are parts that are descriptive. They describe what happened at this time and in this place. What are we looking at? Why is that an important distinction to maintain in the book of Acts particularly? Here, this is a description of what's going on in the early church. And I think any attempt to say, this is what the church has to look like, or this is how the church has to live today, uh, is a bit overblown. Uh Nowhere in Acts 4 or in Acts 2 or in Acts 5 or anywhere else where the common love and the unity of the church that leads to them having a common fund and all supporting each other, nowhere does it say, this is exactly how you have to live as well. Uh, Paul's epistles and the other epistles are full of accounts of how the members of the church all live in their own homes and how they they care for the good of the church in their local place and around the world. Uh, but there's not a focus that you have to go live in a Christian commune, or that you have to sell everything that you have um, in order that nobody would have any bills. 
Um, I suppose if you want to do that, that's fine, but it's not something that scripture calls us to. That is something that was happening in Jerusalem in the days of Acts chapter four. Um, and it's a fine practice, but it's not a practice that anybody is called to do today. So there's there's no mandate here that the way that the church was living in Acts 4, 32 to 37 has to be the way the church lives in every time and every place in the particulars of, say, selling that field that you have and bringing it and putting it at the, the feet of the altar or something like that. That's not a, a prescription in that particular way. There are things, though, that that do come from the prescriptions, the commands that the Lord has given, such that the life of the church looked this way because it has been shaped by the word of the Lord, that same word that does shape our lives today, even if it doesn't take the precise same form. So help us to see how that works. We're looking at this descriptive text. Help us to see how the life of the church is described here. And then as you can, Pastor Ill, make some applications for the church in our lives as Christians today. Sure. Or to back up to a text that is uh, prescriptive, uh, at the Last Supper in the book of John, in John chapter 13, Jesus tells the disciples, love one another as I have loved you. Uh, that That is not simply a description. That is a prescription. It is a it is a go do this, a mandate, if you will, uh, that Jesus gives to the disciples and that Jesus gives to the church. He calls them to live in love and to live in unity. Uh, that unity is certainly expressed in our shared hearing of the gospel and that apostolic word. That mandate is expressed in the love that we have for another as we do work and strive to have a shared confession of faith and to have a unity in the bond of peace and in the spirit. Uh, but it's not necessarily described in all living together and having a common fund for each other's bills, uh, as is done here in Acts chapter 4. And so the disciples and the early church in Acts 4 live together having unity to the point where they don't want each other to have any uh, shared bills, so they just cover it. They sell their houses and their land, and they provide exactly for what they need. Uh, there's no room in the church in Acts 4 for any kind of division or controversy. And when I look at the church today, I have to admit I get kind of jealous because the church today from time to time seems to live for controversy controversy, and maybe a little bit of division. And we're very intent to say, well, well, we're Christians, but not like those other Christians. And this is a sad thing, and it's a grievous thing. Instead, we, we strive to love one another and to live with one another in that unity that Jesus has given to his disciples and that Jesus gives to his church. And uh, I, can, I can see the appeal of saying, well, if we all live together in unity, nothing will, will separate us, even to the point where if we all live together and we don't have any, any individual bills, see, everything will just be okay. But if you've ever tried that for more than about 10 minutes, it really doesn't work. At least it doesn't for me. And I don't know that I'm any more or any less cantankerous than any other Christian. But I always want to do what's best for me because I'm turned in on my own sinfulness. And 
again and again, we see in the love and the unity that Jesus calls us to uh, the importance of repentance and faith. And so as we live in repentance and faith, there's no magic bullet and no cure other than the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that was won by his precious suffering and death. And so we look to that, to the forgiveness that we have in Jesus as what brings us unity. No external uh, living together or having a common fund or selling our houses and our lands is going to bring that about at the end of the day. Those things can be done as a reflection of, of what we have. But boy, even then it's hard. The only thing that unifies the church is the work of God through the crucified and risen Jesus and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We talked a little bit about this when we talked about Acts chapter 2, that what happens in Acts 2.42, where they are sharing together the apostles' teaching, that common thing that they have in the apostles' teaching is the foundation then for their common use of their possessions. And I think that's the point you're making here is that this unity that you see in the church starts with Christ and his word, and then it is given outward expression in this way here in Acts chapter four. As the church today, we still have, if, if we are to have unity, that unity has to be founded upon Christ and his word. Otherwise, it doesn't really, it's not a real unity, as we will see in Acts chapter five, where there is a threat that comes and we get to talk about that tomorrow. If we don't have the unity that's founded on Christ, then then the outward stuff is just outward stuff. But with that unity, when that is there, then yes, you know, I mean, taking care of each other, there's not a mandate that it has to look like this. But goodness, if if I see a, a Christian brother in need and I have means to help him and I have a problem with letting go of my stuff, then there's probably a need for repentance there. And so even, you know, I, I think we need to say that, Pastor Hill, as we say, there's not a mandate here for the life of the church to look in a particular way. There is still, as you brought out, John 13, right? Love each other as I have loved you. Those those commands to love each other still do do exist and, and we should take them seriously. And when we find ourselves fighting against that in our sinful flesh, we want to repent. And, and turn to Christ in faith, as you've said. And so, yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of things to reflect on here. Before we run out of time, Pastor, I do want to make sure that we, we set the stage here at the end because it gets a little, it gets pretty specific with this practice of having a, a land or a house, selling it, bringing the proceeds to the apostles' feet, and then the mention particularly of a guy named Barnabas who will become important later. we got about four minutes here, Pastor, L, just as a way of warning. Sure. So, so Barnabas... Uh, comes and he sells some land that he has, and he puts it at the apostles' feet. Uh, at this point in Acts 4, this seems oddly specific. Uh, but what Luke is doing is introducing a character, uh, a real living character, who is going to be really important in the narrative of Acts a little bit later. Uh, but we get our first snapshot of Barnabas here. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Who is called together? Uh, who is called by God um, in unity of spirit and in love for the whole church to do this uh, loving thing for the people uh, in Jerusalem? And so he simply does it, uh, not because he has to, but because he can. Because God has called him to love others, and God has given him this land, and so he does exactly this thing. 
selling the land and bringing the money. Uh, but there's going to be a distinction between what Barnabas does in Acts 4 and what other people do in Acts chapter 5. Uh, Barnabas is selfless and devoted to the whole church, but uh, he's not deceitful, and he doesn't hold any of the money back or even uh, hold some of the money back and lie about it. Instead, he simply uh, gives everything that he has uh, as an amazing gift of stewardship and faith that where that came from, the Lord will provide and the Lord will care for his church. And so Barnabas, along with some of the others in the church, simply does this thing because they can. And it's a way that God's provision and God's providence for the whole church is seen. Um, I do think it's helpful, though, right before we wrap up, to remember that the church is being the church, but they're not fussy about it. They they love one another as God and Christ has loved them, but they don't take all of their time to talk about being the church. They just are the church. But when they talk, they talk about Jesus. You mentioned before, Pastor Apple, how the life of Jesus and the life of the church in the book of Acts seems to be inseparable. And every time the apostles start to wax eloquently about what it is to be the church, they end up talking more about Jesus and less about the church. That's exactly how it should be. For us in the church today, it's not about, um, you know, puffing out our chests and saying, this is what the church does. The church simply starts to talk about Jesus because without Jesus, the church is nothing. And so as we continue on through the book of Acts, we see the love of God providing for his people, sure, in the selling of lands and houses and so on, but also in the Savior who comes to frustrate the plans of the Gentiles and the people who gather together, um, even the plans of Herod and Pilate by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what the church is built on, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Everything else, that's just gravy as God cares for his people. And that is the joy and the certainty that we continue to share in Christ's church. Pastor Peter Ill is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois, helping us today with Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 37. Pastor Ill, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. Christ's peace to all of you in this Easter season. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 4, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>